Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. On today's episode of the podcast, we're exploring the ethical boundaries of travel and tourism to countries under a repressive regime. In the discussion that you're about to hear, our panel asks, is it justifiable to travel to such places, potentially aiding oppressive governments with tourism dollars, or could these visits serve as a crucial bridge, creating an avenue for dialogue and cultural exchange, and an opportunity for the outside world to witness the realities on the ground. So whether it's skiing in Afghanistan, eating lobster in Cuba, or a package tour in North Korea, here are some things to consider for when you plan your next holiday. Our host for this discussion is broadcaster and academic, Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. In today's world and post-lockdown, the desire to explore new destinations and cultures is stronger than ever. For some of us, spending our holidays relaxing on an idyllic beach in the sunshine just doesn't cut it anymore. We crave action, adventure, the unknown. And this sentiment has given rise to an interest in destinations that are off the beaten track. And with this comes a growth in private tour operators offering multi-day, sometimes multi-week holidays to destinations that include Yemen and North Korea. But is it a good thing that these countries are off the beaten path? Does this often correlate with an unstable or even repressive government? Do tourists have an ethical responsibility to consider the impact and the implications of holidaying in such destinations? I'm joined today by three fascinating guests to talk about the complexities and ethical considerations of traveling to countries that are run by repressive governments. First, we're going to speak to James Wilcox. James is founder of the London-based travel agency Untamed Borders, uh, and in their own words, uh, Untamed Borders offers bespoke trips and small group tours to some of the world's most interesting and inaccessible places. So a holiday with Untamed Borders could see you on a cultural tour through Syria, skiing in Afghanistan, running a marathon in Somaliland. James, can you start by sharing with us some of the reasons people choose to travel to countries like Afghanistan, Yemen or Syria, despite the known risks and ethical considerations? Um, I think the, the reason that people join the trips that we have are similar to the reasons that anybody would go on a on a holiday or, or, or travel somewhere which has which culturally or geographically is is different. So the reason that someone might go to Mexico or South America or to India is the same basic premise why they might go to Afghanistan or Yemen or Iraq. So there's usually a wide variety of reasons. It's it, they're interested in the history or they're interested in the culture or they want to. Um, just understand what, what what life is like is somewhere that's very different from where they're from. And that's generally the driving force behind the people that book the trips with us. And I think most of them have traveled quite a lot. And I think most of them understand that the world is a lot more nuanced than um, perhaps the general public think. And therefore, there are parts of uh, countries that we guide in, there are regions of the country that we guide in where the risk is, it, we can manage it in an acceptable way, the risk, uh, the risk of travel. So you say the, the motivations are similar, but in the sort of places you go, is there an extra thrill to the fact that most people don't go? I don't know whether there's an extra thrill. I don't think, I think there's, there's something 
there's something special about being in a place where, which is super interesting that isn't seen through the prism of tourism. I mean, if you go to say Petra in, in Jordan, the town next to Petra basically exists to service Petra. So everything you're doing within that is through a, a prism, experiencing it through a prism, prism of tourism. Whereas if we take guests to Shabam in, in Yemen, there's nobody else there. So their experience of somewhere which is amazing is, yeah, isn't seen through that. And I don't know if that's a thrill. I think by the way you're saying thrill, it's not the same thrill you'd get as jumping out of a plane or doing a parachute jump or a bungee jump. But it's thrilling in a way that you have, you are fortunate and privileged enough to see some something that's amazing on this earth. And there's very few people there. And what about the benefits for the countries that they're going to? Well, I think that we're an extremely small company and the numbers of tourists are fairly small. So a kind of financial benefit to the country as a whole is going to be very small. Of course, there's a number of families in each of the countries we work in whose, whose living is based on us traveling there and for them is extremely beneficial. Um, but one of the things when I first started organizing and travel in Afghanistan in 2008 was people were surprised that we were tourists. Most international people that the Afghan people that we met had seen were, were either soldiers or uh, working for NGOs. And so those people had come to Afghanistan to help Afghanistan because in some ways it was broken, whereas our groups were going because they found something beautiful in Afghanistan and they found uh, the culture and the scenery and the history exciting. So in some ways, um, bringing tourists to a part of the world that for whatever reason it doesn't see tourists can be a positive just in a in the fact that it, it brings a normalism to people's lives. Seeing tourists in a place that should have tourists is somehow uplifting if you live there. Well, James Wilcox, stay with us while I introduce the second of our three guests. Uh, while Untamed Borders doesn't offer trips to North Korea, this is a destination many would consider the pinnacle of off the beaten track, a communist state that's been described as the world's most isolated nation. For the past two decades, its borders have intermittently been opened and closed for tourists, but guided tours are always mandatory. You may remember that in 2016, an American college student, Otto Warmbier, was arrested. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison for allegedly removing a propaganda poster from a wall in his hotel in Pyongyang. He was later released. He was sent back to the US in a coma. He died on the 19th of June, 2017. And the month after that, the US government announced that US citizens would no longer be permitted to visit North Korea as tourists. That is a ban that's set to expire in a few months this August. So let me bring in my second guest, Korean-American writer Suki Kim. And I think, Suki, you are the only writer ever to have lived undercover in North Korea to conduct immersive journalism, first in 2002, then again in 2011, informing your 2014 memoir, Without You There Is No Us, undercover among the sons of North Korea's elite. So tell us what you did first, Suki. What was day-to-day -day life in North Korea like when you were there? And I think you were acting as a teacher, weren't you? Yeah, the final time I, I lived there, I was um, undercover as an evangelical professor at a college in a locked compound with 270 young men, aged 19 to 20. Day to day, you know, and I went to North Korea uh, five times over a span of 10 years, but never as a tourist. One can go on a package tour to North Korea, but that I never did. Day to day life is uh, depending on how you are able to see 
which is very limited, is no matter where, what circumstances you are in North Korea, is a police state. It is all mapped out for you. So my final time, because my role was as a professor, I was locked in the compound according to the schedule, never allowed out without a minder. With a minder was only a group outing to see great leader monuments. And every day was exactly the same as you would imagine what a prison would be. You're not allowed to have anything with you that could be communicative, like phone or the internet. You just do your duty. At that time, it was as a, as a teacher. But every day is the same. And you were aware of the fact that tourist group tours go into North Korea, uh, can, can be allowed into North Korea. I want to quote something you wrote uh, six years ago. You wrote, casually touring North Korea is akin to hiking at Auschwitz under the Nazis. That's a strong feeling. Tell us more about that. I think, I think you're referring to my Washington Post op-ed following war, Otto Warmbier, the American college student's death. So when we talk about tourism, I mean, I think that generally the idea of tourism is, is uh, going to see a place uh, for a personal enjoyment. It's associated with vacation, the idea of vacation. It's a very first world nation activity. And that destination in this case is a gulag. It's a currently a gulag where 25 million people are trapped. Those people are not, North Koreans are not allowed to move about. Forget leaving their country, but they're not even allowed to go from their town to the next town. So no one's allowed to move. So touring in there, and also there's a, North Korea is also, because it's a nuclear state and a police state, it's a geopolitically a very a complicated place. For example, Otto Warmbier's case ended up being a, a really a, a nightmare for every nation's involved. Forget the fact that Otto Warmbier himself fell into coma and died. He was a young kid. He was 21 years old at the time. So there has to be a responsibility for letting this thing happen, um, this tragedy occur. And why is it like going into a Nazi concentration camp? Because North Korea is. So I do think that these destinations we're talking about have very different levels of danger. In this case, if, if it's considered the worst place where citizens are held captive, where a 21-year-old could just be locked in there for 15 years for taking down a poster, different rules apply to those nations. But I think us, as general human beings, going in there for fun, for touring, I find it ethically unacceptable. Suki, thank you. Stay with us. And the reason that we've got several of you bringing in different perspectives is because there's no binary answer to these questions. You know, the, the considerations may differ state by state. Uh, let me bring in another factor. We've been talking about the ethical implications of, of traveling in countries with repressive regimes through the lens of very off-the-beaten-track destinations. But I'm going to bring in Evan Dyer, senior reporter at the CBC now, because Evan, we're going to talk about Cuba, which for some people is seen as a, as a sun, vintage cars, fun. It is seen as a holiday destination. And I think it's right that Canadians account for more visits to Cuba than citizens of any other country. Including Cuba. Is it, including Cuba. Yeah. Is it fair to say that this is tourism that fuels Cuban repression? I mean, I think it is uh, fair to say that it provides money for a government that is certainly repressive. Yes. You know, and Cuba also, I think, illustrates the fact that there's a big difference between 
dictatorships and dangerous places. You can be one without being the other. You know, I mean, uh, James gave the example of traveling to Iraq. I think everyone would agree Iraq is a pretty sketchy destination in some ways. You know, there's a risk of kidnapping and, and things of that nature in Iraq more than if you go to Spain, for example. But at the same time, Iraq is at least nominally a democracy. It has a democratic constitution. It's a flawed democracy with a lot of violence, with some fraud, but it's a democracy. Uh, Cuba, on the other hand, is a very safe destination. You're very unlikely to be kidnapped there. And you're also unlikely to be imprisoned by Cuban authorities if you're a foreigner with no connections to Cuba. Very unlikely because Cuba depends heavily on foreign tourism. It's one of its three main sources of revenue, and it doesn't want to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. And so Cuba is not off the beaten track, very much on the beaten track. Cuba has over 4 million tourists going in and out every year. That's almost half the Cuban population. It's surrounded, it's, you know, its coasts are ringed with hotels, and it's been this way for quite some time. So it's kind of a safe and pedestrian destination. And certainly for Canadians, going to Cuba is no more adventurous than going to the Dominican Republic or going to Cancun. And that's very much the way that Canadians see it. They don't see it even as a political choice in most cases. They just go to Cuba for the beach. They maybe have a few drinks and, you know, they can eat some lobster. Much the same thing as they would do in Puerto Plata or Cancun or any other Caribbean destination. Many of them being unaware of who owns the hotels they're staying at, who benefits from the money that they spend. Uh, and without really thinking at all, uh, about the nature of the Cuban state, or in some cases, having a sort of a romantic, sort of rose-glassed view of, of the Cuban state. I think that it is quite different in that way from some of the other countries we're talking about. So do you, do you think many Canadians who holiday in Cuba would be surprised if it was put to them they're propping up a repressive regime? Absolutely. I, I do think that. And I think one of the reasons for that is that often the ownership of the hotels in Cuba is a mystery to the people who stay there. You know, there are um, hotels in Cuba that are, are half-owned, usually it's a 49% stake by a foreign owner and 51% owned by the Cuban armed forces in most cases through holding companies. Uh, in fact, in, in, in the Cuban state stake in hotels, which is typically runs between 51% and 100%, uh, is not in the hands of the civilian government as much as it is in the hands of the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces. And that's just a, a sort of a product of the history of Cuba, where Raul Castro, when he was Minister of Defense, Fidel Castro's brother, was the one who had the idea of investing in tourism. And he used money from his defense budget to start the first international hotels around the coast of Cuba. Uh, and then the Cuban Armed Forces span off holding companies, and they really are the biggest operators of hotels, not only in Cuba, but well on their way to being the biggest operators of hotels in the entire Caribbean. Wow. This probably applies to, to many states with a big diaspora or exile community, but I know the Cuban diaspora in Canada has been pretty vocal about this. But yeah. does that have an impact? Yes. I mean, I think it's starting to have an impact. You know, we Canada doesn't have as influential a Cuban diaspora community as you would see in South Florida, for example. But uh, they are quite vocal, and they've been increasingly vocal since the protests of July 2021. And they also heavily put the focus on tourism, because there's a difference between the Cuban diaspora in the U.S., a country that has an embargo on Cuba, and Canada, which doesn't. And that is that large numbers of Canadians without any connection to Cuba, without family who they need to go and see and so on, travel to Cuba. So I think Canadian Cubans are aware of the extent to which the Cuban government is able to survive because of money coming from Canadian tourists. And so they've put the, the focus of their campaigns, their protest campaigns, heavily on tourism. And it, it isn't unlike also the situation that Suki describes in North Korea, in the sense that 
Cuba also is a country where there is now considerable hunger. Cuba is a country where uh, there is not, you know, despite the myths that uh, that continue in Canada about having a great healthcare system and so on. In fact, it's very hard to get decent medical care in Cuba. Cuba is really struggling to feed its people. And actually, just within the last ten days or so, it removed chicken from the ration book for all Cubans over the age of thirteen. You have to be a child now to get chicken in Cuba, and that's a sign of the, the hardship that the government has in obtaining hard currency to buy food. Its own agricultural production is down to nothing. So you're talking about going to a hotel in a country where you're surrounded by people who are not only poor, but in many cases hungry, some of whom are going to be working in your hotel and living, you know, we're not talking about the the very highest level of sort of five-star tourism. Cuba typically is aiming at a slightly lower category of tourists, but it does have five-star hotels. And increasingly, they are sort of islands of plenty in a sea of real, real hardship. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025,1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I want to broaden this out and bring you all back together into the conversation. And let's start with with where we've got to that idea that in Cuba, for example, you could be having a four or five star experience. People around you might not even be able to eat poultry. Um, James, as you run a, a bespoke travel company, how do you what do you do to try to make sure that your tours aren't indirectly supporting regimes or repressive governments? The bottom line is when you choose where you go, you should be aware of what's happening. I mean, Evan talks about Cuba. I mean, places like uh, the UAE or Thailand or Egypt, these are places without democratic governments. And they are also countries where they're considered to be normal tourism destinations. And I think that's what tourism does. I think that's what any kind of cultural exchange does, whether it's tourism, whether it's music, whether it's sports, it normalizes places that are very different. And some of that normalization has negative effects. It normalizes a regime. It means that going to Cuba is a normal thing to do, even though it's a repressive regime. It also normalizes things in a more positive way. It allows people that are very different to understand each other. It um, allows there to be kind of cultural exchanges. These things have a positive aspect as well. 
With regards to not supporting regimes, I mean, we, we try as much as we can to support local businesses, local organizations, uh, local hotels as much as possible. Of course, some money, they have to pay tax. Of course, some money ends up going to uh, the government. I would say that most of the countries that we work in, unlike Cuba, most of their GDP, that tourism is not a major factor. Tourism in, in Afghanistan or, or Yemen or Somalia, this is not a major factor to their to that business surviving. But someone so, like Afghanistan, for example, the money that Westerners can spend will likely go to organizations that are Taliban run because it's a Taliban run almost theocracy. Um, up to a point. I mean, one of the trips you can do uh, with us is a virtual tour with a lady called Fatima. Fatima um, was the first female tour guide in Afghanistan. We employed her in 2020. Uh, she had to leave because she was under threat from the Taliban in 2021. She's now in Italy. And she carries out uh, virtual tours in which she earns some money as a, as a refugee in Europe. And also some of that money goes back to support schools run for women in Afghanistan. And so there are other ways that we, I, it's not exactly the same as carbon offsetting, but it's certainly offsetting in a way that um, we support other things within the countries that we work in to try and, as I said, maximize the benefit that we can bring whilst trying to to minimize it. Afghanistan's a good point in the fact that we will make sure as best we can that we will not have images of our groups that can be used for sort of uh, propaganda purposes. And as much as possible, we avoid, I mean, we can't avoid it with the visas. We can't avoid it if, if we buy food and drink that has to be paid for taxes. But the vast majority of the money spent goes in the pockets of the people that we know rather than the government. And part of that's due to the fact that government's quite shambolically run and therefore they can't maximize that uh, that dollar. So we try to do our best, but it's not possible to do it without putting some money into the pockets of the government. Yeah, you have to think about what's feasible. And Suki Kim, if I can bring you back in here, from this August, US citizens will be allowed to apply to join, I suppose, group trips to to North Korea. Is there any way to do that more ethically? I just don't see how. I think North Korea is an extreme case. Also, when you are on a tour there, you don't see anything except what the government allows. So, you know, you'll go the same, see the same Chuche Tower, which is their great leader tower, and then you see the same, you know, the train station, those exact two stops all tourists get to see. You know, you see, like on YouTube, every tourist to North Korea basically posts the same exact thing because they see the same thing. So it's not really a... It's not really a trouble. It's just being on a package tour that's sanctioned by the North Korean regime, whose language, you know, the philosophy within North Korea, which is extremely a dangerous one that outsiders don't understand, especially Americans. I was deeply saddened and outraged when Arunbir died that the news treated it with such outrage that he, you know, he pulled poster down from the hotel room and then got 15 years. Obviously, Americans did not understand that poster is not a poster. That poster is a symbol of the great leader, which is the most holy thing in North Korea. So you don't put, you know, you don't pull that off the wall. So to them, um, what he did was actually, you know, and that it was a grave crime, but not understanding it and going into that land to tour the nation on a package tour itinerary. I just do not see how that's at all ethical and to whose benefit, because it's not like North Koreans are going to see you. 
because regular North Koreans are not allowed to be in the vicinity of these things. And something I have heard about talking to North Korean defectors who've got to the South is if you were, if you're a North Korean civilian and you're approached by a tourist, I mean, that puts you at risk, doesn't it? You and your family. Yeah, you shouldn't. You're not even supposed to be in the photographs. So any interaction, but not even interaction, the interactions won't even happen because the people that you're going to see in Pyongyang are handpicked anyway. So those same people see the same tours. The rest of the nation is never going to know anyway. And also, I mean, I, I went and covered the New York Philharmonic's cultural diplomacy visit back in 2008 in Pyongyang. And it was the same thing, you know, like just a handful of the, the Workers' Party leaders saw this, but the rest of the nation had no idea. It was an incident that was entirely used and manipulated by the North Korean regime in order to legitimize what they do. And that happens over and over and over again. Same thing with tourism. That money just goes straight to the regime. And the benefit we're talking about just doesn't happen there. Evan, what is the balance that's being weighed here? Because there is always a, a question about you know, cross-cultural understanding and the fact that people more widely will only take an interest if they've witnessed something. I mean, I've heard from people who travel to Cuba and who are aware of the fact that, um, that the Cuban government owns hotels and so on, and who do make some effort to not contribute by staying in what they call Casa Particular, which is a private home, a sort of an Airbnb type arrangement or a B&B type arrangement. Uh, I've also heard a lot from people who try to mitigate things by carrying down gifts for the people they interact with, whether it be people in the hotel or people on the street, or if they're staying in family homes, so they'll bring things that you can't really get very much in Cuba, like Band-Aids or vitamins or razor plates, things of that nature. You know, So people are, in some cases, making efforts to try to, to deal with these things. But at the same time, like North Korea, Cuba is a command economy. So there are people who, who will make those efforts. But at the same time, in Cuba, Every dollar that comes into the country from outside ultimately will end up in the hands of the government, pretty much. Because even if, let's say that you, somebody is operating a private home uh, and is licensed to receive tourists, I can tell you that if you're a dissident in Cuba, you're very unlikely, first of all, to receive permission to have foreign visitors in your home. Uh, you have to be somebody who's seen as not, not problematic by the government. But uh, in addition to that, even if you pay that money to a person and make sure that none of it goes into the hands of a hotel that belongs to, to a government holding company, they still have nowhere to spend that money but in a government-controlled store. I mean, all, all dollars that enter Cuba ultimately end up in the hands of the Cuban government or the Cuban armed forces. Um, I think we're hearing a, a great deal of realism here. And um, James, I wanted to ask you, is there any way you wouldn't go? However corrupt the governments are, and I'm not trying to say the Cuban government or the North Korean government or the Taliban are great, but they do spend some of that money after some siphoned off on things for the public. All governments, that's what the tax dollar goes towards. It's not just about putting people, all that money doesn't go to put people in prison. So you are going to, wherever you go, you're going to end up, some money is going. I mean, Evan has highlighted exactly how the hotels and everything is owned. So it's a very specific case in that matter. But when money goes to the government, it doesn't all go on putting people in prison and torture equipment. Some of that money obviously is spent on public services. However ill we look at the government, that is that is part of the case. But sorry, Philippa, your question was... Was, is there any way you wouldn't go? Um, I mean, one of the reasons we never did anything in North Korea, 
I'll be honest, it wasn't particularly because of the government, but it's, it's related to what Suki is saying. It's because I didn't feel we could offer a, you know, I talked about an authentic experience or something that's not looked through the prism of tourism. And I felt that in North Korea, there just wasn't the space to be able to do something that wasn't, as Suki said, the governmental tour. You go around the same places and like... That's not what I see as travel. Travel and going on vacation are kind of a different thing. I, I just didn't think you would get under the skin of a country like we did in, in other areas. But as we've developed, we have this idea of, especially sort of in tribal groups in, in some parts of uh, South Sudan and Ethiopia, the idea of places being a bit of a human zoo. And as soon as we feel that there are local traditions or local ways of life that are sort of being co-opted purely for tourism, it doesn't sit right with us. And it's something we either try and change or we or we just kind of avoid. And potentially, as Suki said, North Korea is a huge human zoo for, for, for tourists to visit. I'm not sure that that plays into a little bit. But for us, it just never... It never felt right. And, and as for other places, we wouldn't go. I mean, as far as security risks are concerned, there are reasons we wouldn't go. As far as a regime would go... I mean, I think we, we usually sit by the fact that we try and maximize what we can do in a country when we visit. Whatever we can do within that, we try and bring um, something, we try and do it in a positive way that benefits the communities we visit as much as possible. And we create a framework for our guests to experience the country through all facets of it, the geopolitical aspect, the history, the culture, everything. So as far as not visiting a place because of the regime, probably not. Philippa. We would probably okay. go everywhere. At which point, I want to ask Suki and Evan, would you consider a holiday with a group like Untamed Borders? Well, um, I think that if if it has, you know, I was just, when I was just listening to James speak, each country's cases are so different, you know, right? Cuba is so different from North Korea to Afghanistan. One of the things with North Korea, and it has happened repeatedly, is that you end up causing other people's death. That's that's how that system works. So if you end up getting stuck there, your imprisonment is now going to cost a lot of people a lot of sufferings. And that's because it's a very complicated region that South Korea is involved, uh, China's involved, America's involved. So the diplomacy itself can actually cause uh, so much suffering so I think that it's not just that it's a, it's a terrible place to go, but it's also because it's a dangerous thing to do to other people. And outside North Korea, Suki, would you, would you be willing or do you want to go to see places even if the, the regimes happen to be repressive so that you can see for yourself? How do you feel about that? No, not for myself, no. I think if I were writing about it and serving a bigger good other than myself, yes, for work. But for my own enjoyment, I don't think so. And also, I think another thing is, I just wouldn't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you have to educate yourself. To I mean, These are diff difficult problems, depending on a nation. So I don't want to cause people's death by you know just randomly going somewhere because I want to see it. I think we are talking about educated travel. Erin, let me put that question to you as well. You know, would you be excited by or stimulated by the idea of a, a, an untamed borders type of trip? I think it would depend on the destination. Some of the ones that James mentioned, yes, I would be interested in seeing. Um, 
you know, Yemen. I would be interested in going to Yemen. I would be interested in going to Iraq. Uh, I think in those cases, the main concerns are your own personal safety. But I would be much more hesitant to visit another destination which has promoted itself for tourism, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Why? I think it's probably the safest of the three countries to visit, uh, although you are at risk of becoming a hostage of the government there. And I have the same reservations about other countries where uh, there's not necessarily a great risk of crime, banditry, that kind of thing, but where you have oppressive governments that have occasionally held people as hostages. Uh, China is another example. China held two Canadians for a couple of years recently over a political issue. And uh, I just would not want to offer myself up as a hostage to fortune. So North Korea for me would definitely not be a destination I would consider going to. I, I have to say that far be it for me to tell anyone else what to do. But for my own purposes, I, I very much agree with Suki that people should not visit North Korea. And I would not personally go there. I've been in Cuba, but only for work, not for tourism. So I think when it comes to risky destinations, yeah, I, I think I'm interested in seeing them. You know, when I was a kid, my father took us to Eastern Europe. This is in the days before the Iron Curtain fell. And uh, he was a great traveler. He took us to Syria. We toured around in an old Datsun, one of the first Datsuns. And, I, and we really saw a lot and enjoyed it. So I'm all for going off the beaten track. But I do think that you have to, first of all, refuse to participate in anybody else's propaganda spectacle or allow yourself to be used as a token to demonstrate the normalcy of something that is not actually normal, like the situation in Iran. And I also think that you have to be very mindful of what's happening to your money, the money that you bring into the country. And when we're talking about regimes like Iran and also Cuba, the countries that are hard up for hard currency, uh, you know, you are helping them. You are helping them. I agree with James that some of the money will be used for things like medicine and, you know, the normal social services that a government provides. All governments provide some of those. But at the same time, you, you risk prolonging uh, the survival of that regime, and that will have a cost for the people who live there. And that, that is certainly true in, in the case of Cuba, where if you were to remove tourism from the budget of the Cuban government, I think you, know, you would see that regime come down pretty quickly. You've all brought such nuance to the discussion and insights. Uh, I'm going to end there um, with thanks. And I think our audience will have so much to think about from what you've all been saying. Uh, that was James Wilcox, Evan Dyer and Suki Kim. Thank you to all of you. You've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. I'm Philippa Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com.